If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Su. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Art of the Hustle is a production of iHeartRadio. You're listening to The Art of the Hustle, the show that breaks down how some of the world's most fascinating people have hustled and learned their way into achieving great things. I'm your host, Jeff Rosenthal, co-founder of Summit. And today on the show, I had the pleasure of chatting with my good friend, Walter Driver. Walter is the co-founder, chairman, and co-CEO of Scopely, one of the fastest growing mobile game companies in the world. Scopely creates and publishes a highly diverse portfolio of top-grossing, immersive game experiences, including the award-winning Marvel, Strike Force, Scrabble Go, Star Trek, Fleet Command, and Yahtzee with Buddies, among many, many others. Fueled by a world-class team, Scopely leverages its proprietary technology platforms to bring directed-by-consumer interactive experiences to audiences worldwide. Under Walter's leadership, the company has achieved more than $1 billion in lifetime revenue and attracted more than $450 million in financing from leading venture capital firms, tech luminaries, and cultural icons. I was fascinated to hear how self-aware Walter was at the outset of his career, that although he had the vision, he knew himself well enough to hire a team with complementary skill set to make his dream a reality. We talked about the importance of confidence and the power of storytelling when it comes to selling your ideas, and how Walter envisions a future where we more closely interact and foster deeper connections with the entertainment we consume. Please enjoy my conversation with Walter Driver. Walter, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. I uh, I believe we're blocks away from one another in Venice, California. Yeah, I, I feel close to you right now in, in my heart, Jeff, even though I would love to be seeing your face. Oh, what a way to start the podcast. That's such a lovely thing to say. Uh, Walter, you are you know a dear friend of mine. We've been buddies for about 10 years now. I'm really excited to have you on the podcast and I've gotten to you know watch closely this journey of yours in building Scopely and building your wonderful family. And just, uh, it's great to know you, buddy. Likewise, it's hard to believe uh, the 10 years have gone by. It's happened fast. I believe you were living with both your wife and uh, a dear friend of ours. You had just launched Scopely when we met here in LA. 
Yeah, I was uh, I was actually uh, living with a, a mutual friend of ours, and uh, he gives me you know frequent reminders that the first rounds of interviews with Scopely engineers happened on the couch uh, in his living room, where I had actually hired an, a, an engineer off of Craigslist to interview other engineers that I was interviewing because I wanted somebody more technical than me to ask the questions while I observed. So you hired an engineer off of Craigslist. Yeah, I met him originally on Craigslist. I interviewed a bunch of them and found the one that I thought was best. But rather than hiring him to be an engineer, I hired him to, to help interview and vet other engineers I was working with. Yeah. That's a lesson in leverage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and the way that you understood to like begin with how to hire engineers or to even think to hire engineers is that this was not your first technology business. You were the CEO of O Negative Media, yeah. where you developed online games and you also had a company called Ignition Interactive, which was one of the very, very early third-party app developers for Facebook. And I want you to take us back before that, frankly, to start this story, because, you know, Scopely is now one of the fastest growing gaming companies in the world. Going back, uh, you know, I know that you're from the, the Atlanta, Georgia area, correct? Yeah, yeah, I grew up uh, in Atlanta, um, was there for, you know, the first 18 years of my life. And then, uh, yeah, I went to college in New England, which uh, was a major cultural uh, experience for me growing up in the South at uh, Brown University. Yeah, I studied uh, English literature and creative writing there and was yeah mainly focused on, on storytelling, which seemed like it was probably not going to be a great career choice. But uh, yeah, I actually wrote a, a movie uh, that into my senior year that got some attention from a production company in LA that optioned the rights to it. And I, I wound up moving out to LA just after college, you know, pretty quickly decided that I, I didn't want to write movies and work in feature films. It was just a very long cycle of takes years to get something made. And at the same time, I really fell, fell in love with LA. Growing up in the South, I, I just, I had never really met anyone who'd started their own company. Here, I met people who were, you know, doing it, you know, in all different categories of business and just making it seem like, you know, anything you could dream of was possible and really supporting each other in the pursuit of, uh, of doing things that uh, where they were creating new kinds of businesses. And, and I found that super invigorating and exciting. Amazing. In high school, were you an entrepreneur? Not really. I mean, I think I always had a, uh, an entrepreneurial streak. I mean, I was, I was the kid who was you know, had the massive baseball card collection and was wheeling okay. and building all the time with stuff in that ecosystem. But I mean, I was primarily playing sports in high school. I mean, they were a huge part of my life. I played football and, and tennis competitively. And that was, you know, besides school, friends, family, that was really what I did. And for me, actually, it was stopping playing sports after I had three concussions my senior year uh, playing football was one of the great things that ever happened to me because it gave me so much time back to, to have a college experience where I was able to think about what else do I want to do with this time and learn a lot of uh, other skills and, and pursue other interests. So totally, um, I didn't, I didn't know that I would be an entrepreneur, you know, when I was graduating from Brown, I think the two, the two biggest employers, my senior year at Brown were, were Goldman Sachs and the Peace Corps. So that was kind of like the two paths that people were on. Um, around me, and uh, and I didn't think that either of those was was for me. But um, I, le- I learned over time that uh, that I like to be creative, both in you know creating creating experiences for people, but also in creating businesses. And that's kind of what I've been doing ever since college. Totally. Every time you tell me that you were like writing movies, and that's what brought you out to LA, it seems like such a different skill set, completely to what I would think would make for like a successful CEO. 
But when we get under the hood and the way that your technology and your platform works, that's what powers your directed by consumer experience. How have you used that you know, prism or that view on your work? Yeah, I mean, for me, I think uh, storytelling is is really central to entrepreneurship and building a business. And so I didn't take, you know, any business or finance classes at all. I, I did, um, you know, take a lot of a lot of classes um, and, and spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, narratives and, and why people are able to, you know, internalize a narrative that matters to them and something that resonates and, and will give, you know, meaning to them over time. And ultimately, that that was kind of uh, my impulse to do that through movies. And then I sort of realized that, you know, it was a much more exciting opportunity to do that in the next generation of entertainment, which were, you know, interactive experiences rather than passively consumed ones, like, you know, being able to create software to enable experiences that people could interact with and they could change over time and people could customize them and make them their own. That seemed like the next generation of entertainment and, you know, far more exciting on a, on a creative basis. Building worlds, not singular stories. Yeah, building worlds that people people could really make their own, where they had an identity inside of an interactive world and they'd make different decisions than other people would. And, and it was more of a, a dialectic where we you know, would create a foundational infrastructure for, for them to really customize and make it their own. And I found that interplay to be a lot more interesting than, than creating something in a vacuum and then have somebody watch it in a dark room for two hours, four years later, and you don't get any real feedback and it doesn't change and evolve. And so I thought that, you know, that was much more interesting uh, to build these software driven experiences. And, you know, at the core, I think, I think the founder of a company's core job is storytelling in a way um, because you're kind of starting as a, a person with a vision in your head of something that might exist one day that doesn't currently exist. And at the beginning, you have to convince that first person who's going to stop what they're doing and quit their great job to come work with you on, when you, you have nothing, right? Or the first you know, investor to, to back you or the you know, first consumer to, to try your products. Um, and so the ability to clearly articulate what you're trying to build in the future that doesn't yet exist is kind of always you know, at the center of of being able to draw the circle of people who believe in what you're trying to do wider and wider. It starts really small with just you. And then you're, you know, really trying to build more people who can see the vision that you have in your head as it becomes more clear. And there's more, mm. you know, evidence in the outside world, outside of your brain of uh, what's going on there. And so, you know, I think that's probably been the the skill set that has served, served me best in just bringing great people into the Scopely family um, by helping, you know, explain what we're trying to do and then finding people that are far, far better than I am at, at doing all of the, the things that are necessary to create that future. Awesome, man. And I want to understand the, the Scopely timeline more too. So you're, you're on the couch, you're interviewing engineers. There was that story then and the vision that you had then. You know, I'm curious, was it, was it from the beginning that you were going to build this directed by consumer experience platform that could build multiple games? Or did you have a first game in mind that you wanted to build? T- take us back a little bit. I didn't really know, to be honest. I knew that, you know, I felt like I wasn't going to thrive in a job somewhere. I thought I needed to kind of create my own experience. And I knew, you know, what I was interested in, which was, you know, software driven entertainment. And so, and kind of thought about where, you know, the the opportunities were there. And I had been building games online, you know, primarily on social platforms like Facebook and MySpace. And, and I think spending a few years just learning how to build software and how to make experiences that are, you know, compelling to people. But, you know, those products were not, you know, massive transformative businesses. And so I thought, you know, I, after a few years of doing that, I wanted to do something much, much bigger and really channel all my energy into a 
something that uh, I could do for a long time and be really proud of. And, and yeah, so I, you know, I've been, I think, you know, interviewing engineers uh, off Craigslist and thought it was probably time to stop doing that. And so, you know, I thought I needed a real technical co-founder and, and that's when uh, I found Ankur Bulsara, who, you know, had been building MySpace's uh, developer platform. I reached out to him cold and uh, invited him to have coffee with me the next day. Uh, and I promised him it would change his life forever. And he's you know, in the first email, you said, email. come have coffee with me. It'll change your life forever. Yeah. Yeah. I said, I think it's going to change your life forever. And he responded like 30 minutes later and said, I don't normally respond to these cold outreach, but you sound crazy enough that this might be interesting. And he met me for coffee the next day. And I told him, I thought he was ready to be, you know, a CTO of a trans- transformational company. And he said, how do you know? And I said, I just had that feeling. Of course, I didn't really know. And I had also sent a, a similar email to another another CTO candidate and was meeting with him as well at the same time. But I had spent more time with Ankur. He turned out to be you know, an amazing guy. And he was he was a great choice to, to co-found the business with and um, really compliment uh, my skill set. And, and we started, you know, building, you know, digital experiences. We tried uh, building a bunch of different uh, kinds of products. You know, we had uh, a number of people that were kind of trying to figure out where where the big opportunities were. And we were looking at the mobile mobile app ecosystem, you know, which was mm. relatively new. You know, the iPhone had created a whole whole new ecosystem of, uh, of app developers. And that ecosystem was very nascent and quite fragmented. And so we actually had a couple of guys that were working with us who all they did was kind of go through the app store and reach out to developers and have calls with them, you know, to find out what was working, what wasn't working, where they thought the industry was headed, what did they need? And we were looking to kind of form a thesis around what the best opportunities were and see if there were things that we could, you know, acquire or learnings that uh, that might guide our strategy. And and basically what we we saw was, you know, there was a lot of innovation happening around the world with people building building applications, but the central infrastructure to kind of turn those those games uh, and experiences into businesses was lacking for a lot of those developers because basically the central publishing functions in, in a gaming business get better with more scale that you have, but you don't necessarily become more innovative at scale. Sometimes it gets harder, um, whereas small, focused, passionate teams that are trying new things were creating a lot of the new experiences. And so kind of having studied other forms of media, I thought, you know, in books, movies, music, console games, those industries had had kind of matured quickly and consolidated around a handful of publishing entities, whether they're movie studios or record labels um, or big game publishers that, that had that kind of central infrastructure to turn content into a business. I thought there, you know, that wasn't the case in, in free-to-play games in the Western world. And if we could build that, that was going to be really exciting. And so we were started to build some of that central tech infrastructure that we thought would be helpful to make any game a better business. And then, and then we found we found the a guy who had built a game called Dice with Buddies, uh, who was mm-hmm. living in Sacramento, and he, I think he was working at um, at Best Buy at the time. And nights and weekends, he built this this game that you know was pretty small. It was making about, you know, $300 a day, but we were talking to him and and he was giving us some of the engagement metrics and the average user was playing 11 times a day. Um, And it was a pretty primitive experience. And we thought, wow, if this is such a basic experience, it could be optimized in every way. People playing 11 times a day, there, there could be something here. So, so we reached out to him and said, why don't, why don't you fly down to LA and, uh, and let's talk about what we could do. And so he flew down and, and I remember thinking we had, you know, found a real diamond in the rough. And, and I told him, you know, I think, I think we can make this a $10 million a year business together. 
and we should buy it and you should come be part of Scopely and, and we'll scale it. And, and he looked at me and he was like, no way, it's not going to be 10 million. And, and I thought, you know, no, nah, I think we can get it to 10 million. He said, no way, this is at least a hundred million. Uh, I was making about $300 a day and I thought, wow, this is going to, this is going to be a tough, uh, a tough conversation if, um, from a pricing perspective, but we were able to work out a deal. I and, like this guy though. Because yeah. What a baller. It was, it was, uh, you know, it was, it was pretty funny that, uh, he could, you know, he could see it too. And he came, uh, and joined us at Scopely and we built a team around that product and, and we did, we scaled it, you know, to be a multi hundred million dollar franchise. He was right. And then we started building more of those experiences over time and kind of accumulating amazing people and, uh, great, great partners and some of the leading IP holders in the world that create digital experience out of brands that people cared about. And, Mm-hmm. and some great investors and, and we've kind of been at it for the last eight years getting progressively better at, at all those things. We'll be back with more Art of the Hustle after the break. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. Is getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hermosi, Layla Hermosi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come along with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and of course, drama. I'll be joined by some very special guests that'll be helping me break it all down. From award season nightmares to fashion week insanity, you'll get the real stories behind some of the most iconic moments in the show. The Rachel Zoe Project definitely changed my life and career in so many ways. The show definitely captured some of the most amazing moments, but also some of the absolute worst. I made the show for all the fashion lovers out there, and I'm so happy that people still watch it and love it so much. So do not miss this special takeover on Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Not believe I just said that. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Some of these games have 
half a billion in lifetime revenue now at this point, correct? Like it, the thesis couldn't have been more proven correct at this point. Yeah, I mean, the uh, I think the core ideas were were the right ones, and um, and these turned out to be yeah pretty big businesses. You know, Scoby's done over a billion dollars of uh, of lifetime revenue, and you know has had about a seventy five percent companyal growth rate over the last six years. So it's it's been a wild ride for sure. I recall this era of the first generation Facebook and mobile social games. We knew a lot of those same game developers and many of them ended up at some of those like production houses, the Zingas of the world. But you know, that type of game design, that those addiction mechanics, to me, that type of game design, you're thinking about how do you get somebody who wants to play this, not just like one time, but you know, perennially. Was this intentional or was this like through the experimentation that you ended up going a route where you built the latter version of a game studio? Yeah. I mean, I think, look, everyone started, um, you know, with simpler, shallower products, I would say, in this uh, in this ecosystem of, of free digital experiences. And, and people figured out how to make them more interesting for longer periods of time because, you know, we wanted to create experiences that people would play, you know, for for years. And to do that, uh, they, you want to give them a lot of agency and a lot of control over their experience and a sense of customization and, and ways to build meaningful relationships inside the products. I mean, I think that's what keeps people um, engaged in these communities. They're like social networks inside of a digital mm-hmm. playground. And that's what matters to people most is they, you know, they come for the game, but they stay for the relationships they have. And, you know, that that's always kind of been the part of it that interests me. I was never very interested in making games that people played alone uh, in a vacuum, uh, because for me, that was the way that, you know, gameplay facilitates relationship building that was interesting. And, mm-hmm. and a lot of the, you know, people, you know, that are out there feel like, you know, wherever they are physically, they don't feel like they can find people who are like them who think like them, and uh, they might feel isolated, you know, sometimes lonely. And, and I think it's really powerful for people to be able to find like minded people and connect with them through play uh, around the world and have meaningful relationships with people that, that transcend physical geography. And, and that's what happens in a lot of these games. And I think that's the more fulfilling part of it than, than just the fun aspect for me is, is kind of the, the long term uh, relationship building. Definitely. And I mean, in COVID-19 lockdown that we've all been living through, uh, the amount of friends that are spending time in gaming environments on different platforms and hanging out with one another. It's just funny when like, you know, my business partner, I'll be like, oh, have you met so-and-so? You're like, no, you know what? But I play, you know, Call of Duty with them like a couple of hours a night, a few times a week. Or, you know, I'm on Marvel Strike Force or Star Trek Fleet Command to use Scopely examples you know, hanging out with people that, you know, share my interests in a sense. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, we launched Scrabble Go in early March, right, as uh, a lot of people were going into lockdown. And yeah, we had millions of people playing every day, um, you know, saying, this is how I'm staying in touch with my friends or my family. I don't have much to say to them right now because I'm, I'm sitting at home the same way they are, but I want to stay in touch with them. I want to play with them. And this is a fun way for us to stay, you know, feeling connected. And like a Star Trek fleet command, 80% of players play seven days a week. Yeah, I mean, these are, you know, we we really try and build things that are, you know, uh, part of people's daily lives for long periods of time and, you know, provide, provide you know, deeper meaning, as I said. And so, yeah, in something like Star Trek, um, about 80% of, of all the players play seven days a week. And, you know, that's, we're trying to create experiences that, that matter to people that aren't disposable, right? Because it's, it's more creatively ambitious, it's more interesting, it's more fulfilling, and it's a better business to create you know, things that matter to people over longer periods of time. And, and that's really what's changed a lot from the, the early days of free-to-play games, as you, you described, were just generally more disposable experiences. 
thank you for going down the rabbit hole with me on all this stuff because it's so fascinating. With you and your journey, like it's not often that founders are the same people that are talking the shit and hustling at the very, very onset and then scale with the business. You guys are this amazing company now. It's a, it's a multi-billion dollar enterprise. You're literally buying companies from Disney. Nine years ago, not only were you a startup founder with no staff, you were like new to the game of starting businesses in the first place. You were writing movies. You must suck at some stuff. Tell us about it. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, that the that was kind of the foundational precept is that I probably am not good at almost everything. I'm not good enough at everything that needs to be done. And I think some startup founders I know, you know, try to do everything themselves, and it's hard to scale. Um, but if you start out with the the concept that you are not going to be good enough at anything, and you need to find you know the best people in the world at whatever you're trying to do as fast as possible and and learn from them as quick as possible and let them uh, drive you know that's how you you can scale and so yeah i mean i was i think i had the self awareness to realize that i probably wasn't going to be able to build a business like like we built um alone and so yeah i brought good fortune to kind of find some partners also early on that i could bring in and that i could learn from that had experience operating at scales so javier ferrera tim o'brien Two guys at, uh, that were, you know, running basically Disney's gaming business uh, in 2014, which was, yeah. you know, about, uh, you know, 100,000 times bigger than ours. And, you know, they came over as my key partners when we were a seed stage company. And, and really, I learned a lot from, from both of those guys about how to, how to scale. And then we went and brought a bunch of other people into the Scobie family that, that we all learned a lot from. And so that's the hard evolution as a, as a founder is you have to be, you know, very, very confident in your own perspective in the early days, because no one, no one is going to come work with you or invest in you or spend their time on something that is totally unproven with somebody who doesn't really believe in their own vision or who's really questioning it. So you have to go from um, being extremely confident in a very uncertain future uh, to gradually becoming increasingly more skeptical of a more proven future uh, continuously over time. You start to have more data points of success. And, uh, and that's when you really need to start being skeptical again of your own vision and, and be looking for people who have contrary perspectives at that point and, and be more attuned to what am I missing? Uh, whereas in the beginning, you're, you're really more in broadcast mode all the time of, of saying mm-hmm. like, who we are and where we're going, because if you don't say it over and over again, it's people forget it very quickly because there's no, there's no actual data to support what you're saying. But that's the hard part as you scale is kind of, you know, starting to feel like you need to become increasingly skeptical of and less certain of your own views, you know, as, as you grow. You were just talking about, you know, the, the wonderful partners that you have today um, that are, are managing the business. You also have like a Hall of Fame, you know, uh, uh, alumni network of people that, you know, were at Scopely and then went on and started really amazing companies. And I think about that captain mentality, right? Like there's a great book called The Captain's Class that just talks about that being the differentiating factor of like the great franchises throughout history, sports dynasties. It wasn't about a greatest of all time player. It wasn't about having the best coach, but it was often having a captain who wasn't the best player on the team. Bill Russell being like a prototypical example he never had a scoring title. He wasn't, he, he wasn't the player that was like the most exciting. He never had the most of any stats, but when he left, they stopped winning championships. You've always been able to empower great players who also are in their own right, like CEOs and entrepreneurs. And there's something very, very rare about that. Yeah. I mean, I guess for me, it's, it's really like 
you know, about the experience, right? I didn't, uh, I didn't start out in this company, frankly, to build a specific product or to have a you know, specific kind of financial outcome or anything. I, I just wanted to have a really interesting experience uh, that, you know, I was fully engaged in. And for me, I thrive off of just like the exertion and the challenge, the stimulation of needing to learn and grow all the time. Like that's kind of my, my addiction. For me, you know, if I want to keep learning and growing, I need to be surrounded by smart people that are challenging me and taking taking things that are farther than I could ever take them. And so my mentality was that we need to get, you know, better, faster. And, and one of our core values is, is just iterate to success. This idea that we need to, to learn and iterate faster than anyone else. And that comes from, you know, the dialectic of getting multiple perspectives together and feeding that into the system and creating a better perspective. And and then and getting that flywheel spinning faster. So I spend a lot of time, you know, talking to talented people and and trying to get them into the Scopely ecosystem. And and then good things seem to happen, even if you don't know, you know, you can't foresee all the great things that a great person is going to be able to do over years. They're making you know, thousands of decisions every week, but those compound over time. And and so I always felt like the highest leverage thing I could spend time on was spending time with great people that are working at Scopely and, and that we want to have at Scopely. And, you know, if we get the, the best people together and have a clear idea of what we're trying to do and we have the resources we need, then everything else will, will unfold over time. Totally. And then what's the plan? Are you guys becoming more international? Where, where are you leaning into right now? Yeah, it's a pretty exciting time uh, for the business. You know, as I said, we started a company like 2011 and, and we've grown more in the last 12 months than we did, you know, in the first eight years. So pretty exciting as uh you know as an entrepreneur because you you know you kind of get up every day and you go just push on a wall and then so one day you know eight years in it kind of feels like the wall the wall falls down and uh and you're kind of going downhill suddenly because you know people are interested in coming to work at your company or interested in investing or you know uh you have people that you know are, are playing your games and people want to come be part of what's going on instead of having to uh, convince people that the future is is going to be exciting. There's, you know, that external data to support it. And so that's been pretty exciting. We've had a pretty wild uh, last year with Star Trek Fleet Command has grown exponentially and is one of the most successful MMO strategy games in the West right now. And, and the team behind that has just yeah, blown me away over the last few years, what they've been able to do. And then, yeah, we launched Scrabble in March, which is by far the biggest audience game in the history of the company. And so that's that's pretty exciting. Uh, as you said, we we bought some of Fox's gaming assets from Disney earlier this year and, and acquired a game, Marvel Strike Force, that was what you know, a game that we really admired creatively and that players loved. And um, we thought it could be even more successful than it was, and and it's grown tremendously since uh, since we acquired it. And 2020 has been very stimulating, to say the least. You know, I'm sure most of this is happening from home. You know, how is you, is your office all remote, partially remote? How are you guys dealing with COVID right now? Yeah, we have everybody working remotely. You know, across 15 locations on four continents, and you know, I think it, you know a lot of companies have had this experience. It's gone remarkably smoothly so far. Um, we did, you know, fortunately have a lot of experience working with distributed teams because we have locations around the world, but. Everyone's still trying to figure out what things are working better because it does feel like there's some real advantages, but also uh, maybe some things that we're missing in terms of how you build trust and human connection. You alluded to this uh, before we pressed record. What are some of the things that you know need to get better and that you guys are improving upon and the way that you work together remotely that you know we'll all be able to do ourselves? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the the biggest thing for us is that I think we relied on physical proximity sometimes as as a as a crutch. We were 
not as deliberate and sophisticated about designing communication flows that, that would really scale and, and a culture and values that, that um, travel well. Yeah, building more discipline, values, architecture, and, and principles that, that travel well and behaviors of how you work and just you know, thinking about how you define those things and how you onboard new people into a way that, you know, when you onboard people physically, like they, they are very sophisticated at absorbing, you know, cultural norms very, very quickly, right? From seeing how people are behaving and you just don't get that remotely. And so, you know, really defining a lot of those things, I think uh, will make, make it when we can work together, you know, it will make those uh, systems sharper and more powerful. So it's, it's really about thinking about what, what have we been using proximity for and how do we solve for that in a remote environment and maybe kind of having more texture in what we do when we have proximity, right? It's like a lot of the workday before was, was kind of similar in nature. You'd go to the office, you'd go from one room to another, have meetings, work alone at your desk, but you're having a lot of the same kinds of experiences with people. And, and so, yeah, I've definitely been thinking a lot about if one of the primary things that proximity is for is about building trusts and connections so that people can be really candid with each other and and understand that each other have each other's best intentions at heart then then you can challenge each other more and get better faster then maybe we should be spending more of that time you know doing things that directly are uh, focused on building connection and trust rather than than just sitting in a meeting maybe we should get out of the office more and do things together outside the office that that you know are more of a context shift to create different kinds of relationships I mean unfortunately we're you know we have some time to figure it out right now because it doesn't seem like we're gonna be back together soon but we've been very fortunate that it's gone very smoothly for us but you know I miss I miss being around people I miss the energy of being with with uh, all of my team and partners at Scopely because like that's what keeps it keeps it energizing every day and so it's nice as it's nice to not be on an airplane uh, all the time and really nice to spend more time with my with my family but uh, I miss I miss seeing my friends at work. Art of the hustle will be right back after this short break. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people. In an unscripted, unvarnished way, is getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine, And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do 
is Listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come along with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and, of course, drama. I'll be joined by some very special guests that'll be helping me break it all down. From award season nightmares to fashion week insanity, you'll get the real stories behind some of the most iconic moments in the show. The Rachel Zoe Project definitely changed my life and career in so many ways. The show definitely captured some of the most amazing moments, but also some of the absolute worst. I made the show for all the fashion lovers out there, and I'm so happy that people still watch it and love it so much. So do not miss this special takeover on Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Not believe I just said that. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I want to understand, you know, uh, the, the more macro generational consumer a little further. Is there things that in particular that have been fascinating that you've learned about the archetypes that play your games right now? Are there consumer behaviors? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we have a portfolio of games that appeals to different types of people. And, and so I, I don't think I'm, I'm an expert in kind of, you know, the next generation of you know, what the kids are doing or saying. I think, uh, I think my insights are, are more probably around how uh, the next generation of entertainment is evolving for everyone. I think that's kind of the, the big shift is, and, you know, if you look at the history of media, it's really been about people having more agency and more choice over time, right? And people people like that. So you had a handful of, you know, network TV channels for a long time with, you know, not a lot of choice about what you watched or when you watched it or how you paid for it. And, uh, and then, you know, this direct-to-consumer revolution created much better consumer experiences because you can go to Netflix and watch whatever show you want to watch whenever you want to watch it that's very tailored to your interests and you can unbundle it from a lot of other content and decide, you know, whether you want to pay for it or not. Fundamentally, there's just a lot of passively consumed content that's being created. There's hundreds of millions of hours of, of video that's created every day. And I think the biggest shift is that that passively consumed media that's sort of the same for everyone is becoming uh, a little bit more commoditized. There's a little bit of downward pressure on how, how special it feels to people and how much mm-hmm. they're willing to invest in it. Um, obviously there are exceptions that of stuff that, you know, really matter and break through, but, but it's a, you know, as a general trend, there's just a lot more supply is growing faster than demand in terms of, of passively consumed media. And so I think the biggest shift is that this idea of directed by consumer experiences where, you know, we, we let people not just watch any show they want to watch, but actually direct the show and decide which characters they want to engage with and, how they want to play and to do that, you know, as a person who has an identity inside of a world that's a reflection of, you know, their choices and their decisions. And, and that means that experience is going to be unique to them. And so that's, it's kind of a snowflake experience that no one else is going to have. And that, you know, that's one of a kind, and it has a lot more value to people if it's a reflection of their choices. And so I think that's the big shift that, that we're really focused on. Content is definitely going through that moment right now in a sense, just just in terms of how much we're watching it. We're all at home. If your team were to make a movie or a television show right now and use sort of the principles that you use in game design, like tell us more. You mentioned interactivity. I think like choose your own adventure style, like, you know, page turner. But I'm sure you have a much more evolved definition of what you're talking about. 
I mean, we talk about this a lot and, and, you know, content is expensive as you alluded to. And, uh, and increasingly it, it becomes somewhat disposable where people, you know, watch a few hours of TV that costs, you know, millions of dollars to produce. And they don't even remember what they watch five days later because the velocity of, of consumption is so high. And so it's a bit of a furnace that you have to keep kind of feeding uh, as a business. And it has less meaning to people over time because, because they're consuming so much. And so, that's kind of why we say like, we don't want to create content. We want to create context. So it's really about like creating a digital context where people can take actions inside of an environment where there's a lot of significance of those actions and, and it means a lot to people. So it's less about this, like taking people on a linear narrative where we're prescribing what's going to be interesting. And it's more creating an environment that's it's more like creating a digital theme park right? Where people can come in and they can go on the rides they want to ride and, and the restaurants they want to go on. And, and, you know, different people at different ages, different family profiles want to do totally different things when they go to a theme park. And so it's more about how do we create the most interesting theme park where, where people can find the things that resonate with them and, and then even customize those things. And so I think that's, that's kind of been a more interesting and iterative experience than, than yeah. creating content that, uh, that kind of blows by you really fast and, and you never see it again. You're describing, you know, like the digital theme park. Like I imagine we'll live more and more of our lives in a digital environment. Do you see this like near future where things that we've done socially are going to continue to extrapolate digitally? Like are these early markers of a future that we're all sort of leaning into right now? It's hard to not believe having gone through this COVID experience that there are going to be things that happen in digital uh, realms that people didn't really do before uh, there over time. Seems like with uh, with higher speed internet connectivities and, and people having developed new habits around how they connected, certainly there are going to be you know digital experiences that may supersede real world experiences in certain cases. But I obviously, I think you know, there's nothing more powerful in our, you know, evolutionary biology than physical proximity with people we care about. So I don't think any of that stuff is going away. We're not as focused on creating kind of one, one encompassing kind of metaverse and ready player one. I mean, it's possible that someone will create that, but we, I mean, I think we're more creative, you know, focused on creating uh, digital pockets that are really meaningful to certain, certain groups of people rather than one overarching one. You know, I think that's definitely already happening, right? There's no, there's no question about it that there's, thousands of, uh, of game experiences out there that, you know, lots of people engage with every day where they're, you know, building meaningful relationships and have, you know, personas and avatars inside of them. That's, that's already happening. Uh, whether they're all, you know, uniform and united and inside of, you know, some single meta experience at some point, you know, we'll see, but, um, but certainly, you know, it's trending that more, we're able to do more and more things digitally, you know, every decade that goes by. I am really blown away by everything that you guys have done. You know, like the culture that you've built, the people that you've recruited into the company, the vision that you had, and, you know, the, and, and really just, you know, the time I know it took for all of you guys to do the hard work that put you in a position to where now you're going down the hill, which makes me really happy for you. Yeah, I appreciate that. It's, um, you know, you've, you've seen it all unfold since the beginning and, you know, you know, the, you know, as uh, Ernest Hemingway said, you know, you must always be prepared to work without applause because, you know, at the b beginning of building anything, you know, there's a lot of time where, you know, not many people think you're, you know, going to be able to pull off whatever you're trying to do. And uh, it takes a lot of, um, you know, resolve and people around you that are supportive and encouraging around that enterprise and in that enterprise. And, 
I think the, the best advice I've ever been given about this is, you know, that people really overestimate what they can do in the short term and always underestimate what they can do in the long term. And so if you kind of keep channeling your energy, you know, towards one project for a decade, you, you can accomplish a lot. So what are the leadership qualities that you admire? What are the things that, you know, you, you seek for yourself and that you, you really admire in other people? You need a combination of, uh, of steady resolve and consistency. I think, you know, people really value folks who can be responsible for kind of the energy that the organization is riding on. And, um, and so I think kind of being a custodian of that energy and making sure it's, it's positive and healthy and sustainable and comes from a good place uh, is really, you know, a critical element of leadership because people feel, feel that energy. And if it's manic or inconsistent, even it's, it's hard for an organization to really build continuity at scale. And so, you know, there's an element of real conviction and confidence that I think is critical, but there's also an element of curiosity and, uh, and self-awareness that is necessary. As I said, when you, when you scale, um, I think people really value, uh, people who are curious about their opinions, who, who don't feel like they have all the answers yet or that their perspective is just a partial perspective that is incomplete and can only be completed by hearing from people who have, you know, different vantage points on, on whatever's happening. And so, you know, for me, I think it's that combination of, uh, you know, long-term conviction and confidence and resolve and and also, you know, curiosity and admiration for people who are, are you know, giving their all and doing things that, that you don't know how to do it, as we said. And I think then, then people feel like they're in the right place, they're going in the right direction, and, you know, they're appreciated and valued. I want to be respectful of your time, and I really appreciate you being on the podcast. And, um, and, as, we, and as we sign off, you're remarkable, and you're a brilliant guy and all the things, but, you know, what I love most is that, like, you really have a great way of breaking things down into the achievable and approachable ways in which you could see the unattainable. And I mean, dude, it's, it's, it's a remarkable, remarkable generational story that you guys have built over there. So thanks again. Well, yeah, thank you. I mean, I've met so many of uh, my favorite people through, through you and summit. And I think it, you know, it's exactly the complimentary component of like, I love getting together with, you know, interesting people and discovering them in the, in the real world, which has been, you know, you guys have done such a great experience of fostering those environments, um, you know, in, in the real world. And we've been focused on the digital side. And so, um, you know, deeply appreciative of, of your friendship and uh, all the amazing stuff that you guys have done over the years through Summit. All right. Well, thanks again for being on Art of the Hustle. Appreciate it. Walter Driver, you're the man. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards 
like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind-the-scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. 